There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream. Hello, and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'll be uh, uh, beginning, I guess, our 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 uh, the the end, the beginning of the end of our coverage of Stephen King's novel It. Um, I guess we have five more episodes, including this one, um, to get through it. Um, so yeah, that brings us. We're about halfway through the novel. I guess we can start. Um, pulling all the threads together i suppose um and and king does that quite well i think in these these chapters um in fact part four uh titled july of of 1958 is i guess my my favorite part of of the book um you know the final part's great too the ritual of chud chud um but but i think overall i really uh like the chapters uh in in July of 1958, as we were, we're through with the introductions to our enemy <clears throat> and our characters, and we begin to explore deeper into their memories as they begin to confront it, as the losers begin to confront it as a group. And um, there's actually kind of two climaxes to that, uh, that uh, you know, that effort i suppose maybe three if you include the time shift right we have the 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 confrontation at nebel street in the um at the end of part four and then we have the confrontation with it in the sewers in both 1958 and 1985. so um also the the story uh shows development in all these characters i think in in very important ways especially like beverly eddie maybe uh undergoes some of the most significant change i think in july 1958 um anyways we, we learn a lot more about pretty much all of these characters in these and at some of the more epic moments uh, are in the second half of the book i think but i guess first we actually have to deal with Derry, the third interlude um before we jump into part four um, this is uh, the ch- chapter, the, the the interlude describing the, um, the the shootout with the with the gangsters, right? So this this section, it's it's like all the interludes. It's written by Mike Hanlon as he's doing his research into into it um, when the murders began again, and he's thinking more and more about Derry's past, and he's thinking about should he call the other losers? Should you know is 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 this has the cycle be- begun again? And he kind of works this out in his head through this historical investigation. And, and I love these chapters, as you know, because they allow us to, to dig into Derry's past in ways that this, the, the, the story really doesn't um, allow us to. So uh, anyways, the Bradley gang ex- execution, which is how it's called in the book, is, is kind of, uh, it goes back to the 1930 cycle. Maybe it's, the 19, maybe it's 1929 to 1930. Uh, whenever that cycle began, but so if the fire at the Blackstop 
Black Spot, which we've already discussed in the previous interlude chapter, ended the 1930s cycle. It's the Bradley Gang execution that began the same cycle. So it's a little out of order, which, of course, we're used to in this book, the story being told in bits and pieces. Um, it seems this was researched later, right? That's why we get it later. It's researched later by Mike. Mike researches the Black Spot first because his father tells him the story of the Black Spot. So he knew about that from... Uh, a much earlier place in his life. He knew he got that whole story when his father was dying. Um, you know, was it cancer? Yeah, I think it was. <clears throat> so it's only later as he researches into Terry's history that he learns about the Bradley Gang execution. And there's a really interesting story here. Um, uh, now, it's written in March 17. So this is, what, two or three months before the losers arrive, uh, before he makes the phone calls. Um, so it's pretty close to the events. So this, we get that same kind of intertwining of, of the storylines here. Um, now, what does this story really tell us? Well, one thing about it is it's really about dairy. Uh, of all the interlude chapters, this one's probably the most about dairy. Um, the Black Sikabot one is about race and American race relations in dairy and, and across the country. And it's about Mike's relationship to his father. Um, the first interlude is really, you know, setting up dairy in a bigger sense. It's, it's, it's history, the big picture of the cycle and all that. This is uh, our first, I think, really conscious look at dairy's psychology, I guess. Now, it's hinted at. There's nothing surprising in this by this point in the story. Um, you know, we're told early in the first interlude that, you know, the entire town of dairy is haunted. And what does it actually mean? And and here it is, this Bradley Gang ex execution in which the entire town takes a part in. And yeah, the Bradley Gang aren't good guys. They're criminals. They're alcohol smugglers. They're, they're gangsters, right? They're not the best people. But the fact that the town uses this event to basically do a public lynching and then proceed to like forget about it or not talk about it or kind of excise it from their history uh, is really a horrifying, ter terrifying thing about dairy. In fact, Mike doesn't isn't really, really able to get the story from people until he talks to Norbert Keene. Now, Norbert Keene was the pharmacist that uh, we've met a couple times already. And he we're you know, he's the one who is profiting off of the, the torture that Eddie's mom is giving him. Um, and he kind of gets off on it. And and this is actually a closer look at Norbert Keen uh, in a much older you know, time in his life when, he, when he's an old man. And he's proud of this. It's kind of like it really reminds me of the, the lynchings they did in, you know, in the American South of African-Americans. And, you know, people would take pictures and keep souvenirs and things like that. Now, Derry's a little special in that most people don't want to remember this, but Norbert Keene is very proud of this. He doesn't really have any um, hesitation in sharing his stories with, with Mike, which I guess tells us something special about Keene. Now, again, neither side here is, is righteous. They're both quite... Uh, horrible the, the lynching by the entire town and the gang but the way it's presented is as a really sort of frightening thing where where it almost becomes like a public event kind of like a like a fair day 
or a parade or an event for the whole town to get together. And it happens sort of organically and naturally. It's not something that has to be really planned out. It's just, oh, there's going to be a lynching. Let's all come out and do it. And then like everyone sort of partakes in it. And I think that's what really fascinates Mike about it. And this is the beginning of, of that 1930 cycle, which ends, of course, in the black spot. Um, so the story itself is not that complicated. Basically, this is a, uh, uh, a gang of, of smugglers that is going through dairy and, and their activities in dairy are exposed by the f fact that they're buying a whole bunch of weapons from a merchant in dairy. So word gets out that they're coming through. And then, then we just get the event where they're trapped and, and basically executed really indiscriminately uh, without any effort to capture them. Uh, people are shot down on the streets with their backs turned as they're fleeing. It's, um, it's not at all pleasant. And, uh, and Norbert Keen just loves telling the story, but he's also very open about the fact that people aren't going to like be very honest about having participated in it. It's kind of like a dirty little secret of the town. So there's not much more to say about this section. I guess it, um, it's worth pointing out that, of course, uh, it is at the event, and he's there just in his clown suit, in his clown avatar. Uh, partaking in the murders and there's some kind of weird supernatural elements like he doesn't really show off a shadow and and things like that and Mike asks him like who do you think that is and and Norbert Keen's just like well it could have been anyone in a clown suit someone who didn't want to you know it could have been the mayor dressing up so he wouldn't be seen you know just whatever no big deal but he does say like oh there was rumors that that guy didn't have any any um any shadow I do want to say something about the cycle of the 1930 cycle. Um, it is really a bad one. It's worse than the 58 one, which was cut short. Um, but, you know, both were both the previous cycles were cut short. So we don't know how bad most of them would get. We don't have a like a description of the full cycle. Of course, the Kitchener Ironworks uh, killed 102 on its own, but we don't know how many others were um, were killed in that cycle. Um, that one actually begins with what the beginning of that 1906, 1905, 1906 cycle uh, will be explored in the next Dairy Interlude chapter. Um, but there's like 200 murders or disappearances in 1930. And, uh, you know, that, I don't know if it's here or in a different chapter. It might be in the first interlude where this is just sort of tossed off as the depression people left you know records weren't that good in those days or whatever but a pretty nasty nasty cycle um and i think this is also the the children in the standpipe are are um the ones that uh that stan sees are from this cycle as well and then of course it ends with the burning of the black spot when when a bunch of people die too so this was a pretty nasty nasty cycle um and of course it was witnessed by by none other than than william hamlin right um mike's father so i guess there's not too much to say about this this is probably my least favorite of the interlude chapters but what's cool about it is i guess that window into norbert Keene and the and the deeper delve into the psychology of dairy is just uh, a, the, that the adults of dairy and the people of dairy just sort of get off on on the 
on these events, you know, especially if they're not um, likely to be victims of it. All right. Um, some questions here is, I guess, to what degree is Keen reliable? I, I think there's no reason to think he's not being particularly reliable here. Uh, he's proud of his participation in the Bradley Gang shootout, and he's uh, a weirdo. He's a great uh, example, I think, for, for King of, of the typical dairy adult. Um, and of course, uh, I guess the other question is, is it just being an opportunist with the Bradley Gang shootout or did it play a role in orchestrating the shootout in the lynching? Um, did it somehow motivate the people of Derry? Obviously, at some level, it is motivating all actions in Derry. But the forgetting, I guess the forgetting or the conscious forgetting, this is different, I think, than the forgetting of the losers who forget so much about their past. I think this forgetting is a willed forgetting by the people of Derry because people are capable of remembering it. They just uh, choose not to. And I think you even get signs here of people taking souvenirs and things of, you know, even body parts of the Bradley gang, uh, victims and stuff. So it's a horrific event in Derry history that just sort of doesn't show up in history books. It's just something that's covered up. So anyways, then we get to the apocalyptic rock fight and part four, uh, July of 1958. So these chapters, and there's six, just like in part two, which is about June of 58, we uh, each chapter begins with events from 1985 from the perspective of one of the losers. So each chapter is, is, is a different loser sort of point of view. <coughs> Excuse me on the events. I guess there is an exception to that, and that's the, the, the Corcoran story, you know, um, in, in the June chapters. But here we get one, you know, we always get an introduction set in 85 from the perspective of uh, one of the losers, and then we get the flashback to something they recently remembered, right? So in that sense, the structure is very much like June, but since we do have a fully formed group by this point, we have a clearly defined villain. We have uh, an understanding of what it is and what Derry is. Now King can really start to dig deeper into these these themes. And I think he does that really, really well in some of these chapters. In The Smoke Hole, in um, the album is pretty good. Um, the Patrick Hochstetter chapter is brilliant, I think. The Eddie's chapter is great. So we'll be over the next three episodes, we'll be looking at these chapters one uh, one after another. But the first one is the apocalyptic rock fight, which is, of course, really the chapter in which the losers come together as a fully formed quartet with that magical number of seven. And it takes, uh, obviously, the threat of, of the bullies. Again, the bullies being clearly used by it to, uh, to attack them. And, and I guess that's sort of these two chapters I'm going to look at today, 13 and 14, are sort of about the final formation of that losers club and the i guess the revel like it revealing itself to the losers as a group you know still confident this is very different from how things are going to go in 85 i think but the revelation to the losers uh is the challenge to this quartet to this number this this number of kids these seven kids it's the challenge to them to to kind of to confront them is when it really begins to become very motivated 
in its efforts to kill the boys first, or the boys and girl, uh, don't forget Bev, uh, through using the bullies, using Ed's mother to try to break up the losers, using, um, you know, just going at them themselves. You know, Bev is almost killed uh, by, by it in these chapters. Later on, almost killed by her father. So it's doing everything it can to kill off the losers collectively or one after another. And so the confrontation gets ratcheted up until they have that confrontation in Ebold Street, which could have been the climax of the 58 chapters, but he, it doesn't. Um, King continues on into the August of 58, which gives us some great, which, you know, leads us to that such a memorable uh, concluding chapters of the book. So anyways, what happens in the apocalyptic rock fight chapter? Obviously a rock fight which I don't think I need to remind any of you what it, you know, what involved. It's in both of the movie adaptations. So we start out from Bill's point of view in 1985, and he's the first to arrive at the library. And they're all supposed to come back to the library after the walking tours, chapters, and they all bring booze. Um, but I think this, we just see Bill's arrival and then Mike's, um, Mike's, maybe he gets there around the same time or he was already there i'm not I'm, i guess i i'm not sure where that lines up with uh they're working on silver together because mike did leave work but uh, he must have come back to kind of close up the library and then bill comes um and there's not much more to say about this but um the arrival of everyone to the library is parallel to the arrival of everyone at the gravel pit in the apocalyptic um rock fight at least I, I like how what King does with that because the rock fight is, I mean, from a child's point of view, it's an apocalyptic thing, right? It is a, a great battle um, against the enemy with the team fully formed. It's, 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 it's a cinematic moment, but the whole thing only lasted like a few minutes, right? It's not a huge event in like in world history by any sense, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's super, super significant for the formation of the, of the Losers Club. All right. Anyways, in you know, in these chapters, and all these uh, part four chapters are, are similar, in that we see the losers committing to a goal, arming themselves, coming to a state of total belief about the nature of the evil affecting dairy, in both timelines, and and bringing all the last members of the losers to the group. In eighty five, it's symbolized by them coming to the library and discussing their memories. And of course, in, in in 58, it's the rock fight followed by the album, the smokehouse, and then the confrontation on Newbold Street. And there's some other events that happen along the way. Um, but it's all about kind of total uh, acceptance of the mission and the, and the, the arming, you know, learning what they can about it. They also learn a lot about its nature and its location even. Um, so anyways, uh, in 1958, most of this chapter is set obviously in 1958, as in all of these chapters, um, we see, we kind of flip back and forth between the losers playing in the Barrens, uh, and then uh, flipping to Henry Bauer's relationship with the Hanlons. And then these two, these two threads come together in the gravel pit. Um, so um, the losers are, they're having fun. I mean, it's, 
after what they've been experiencing, um, they're still kids, right? So they're still finding joy in their summer together and joy in their group and then their camaraderie. And but what they're playing is really interesting. They're playing like they're essentially playing like a hunting game, which, of course, they're being hunted. And we actually get like it's watching them. We're, we're told explicitly in the text that it's watching them play the hunter. But they're, of course, come to hunt it and it's hunting them. So that's that's kind of fun. It's almost like practice for that. I, I'm not, you know, do the are the skills they learn as kids playing as hunters reflected in this in the strategy they actually bring to bear when they confront it? I think so. I think that's part of it. Um, but uh, they also come to the realization that it is is connected to the sewers in some way um, while they're playing together. It's it's you know, they put the pieces together about where they have encountered it uh, with Bev, Bev and the and the drain. So they they come to the conclusion that it is somehow associated with the with the sewers and the Morlock holes. Uh, that those are what Ben calls them, right? So that those are really these are really fun moments to see them just playing together, um, even though that we're not we're we're never allowed to forget the 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 threat that's overhanging their their experiences, but they're together, so it doesn't confront them directly at this point. Using instead, it uses um, others to do the confrontation, and this brings us to. Um, Henry Bowers in his hatred for the Hanlins, which is really, really well documented and described here. In fact, King makes a point of, or the narrator makes a point of telling us how most of the losers think that they're the most hated, at least Ben and Richie um, and maybe Stan think they're the most hated by Henry Bowers. But the truth is Henry Bowers hates the Hanlins most because because of... um, class prejudice, racial prejudice, really coming together. Uh, There's a family history of hatred, right? So we already got some of the history of William and Butch Bowers, Henry Bowers' father, and some of the conversations between um, an older Will and and Mike, older Will Hanlon and Mike, uh, in the previous section where uh, we learned that, like, Butch Bowers killed the Hanlon's chickens. but we learn how that that hatred, that racial hatred, and that jealousy over the Hanlons being a slightly more successful farm family, while the Bowers are in debt and poor and and you know, really hard, hard up, right? They're like, you know, they're not really making it. Um, and this culminates in the in I guess in when we learn that it was Henry. This was hinted at earlier in the book too, but we we are, we're taught that. That Henry Bowers actually killed um, Mike Hanlon's dog by murdering him, and actually like wooing wooing the dog over over weeks, feeding him meat, and then finally poisoning him and relishing in the murder of this dog. And that I don't know if it is involved in that particular act, but it's just it's more about how racial prejudice gets passed on through the generations. Uh, Henry Bowers can't help but hate the Hanlins because that's what he was taught day in, day out by his father, who had deeply, deeply, deeply uh, deep hatred, deep race-based hatred towards the Hanlins um, from the as soon as they moved to Derry. That, that's been there, but it's passed on to the next generation. 
And so the real, the one that is hated the most by Henry Bowers is is Mike Hanlon. Uh, and of course, he goes to a different school, so he's sort of the last to join the losers, but this is the event that brings them all together. And then we see a very long description of how Henry and the other bullies begin to chase Mike. And as always in these chapters, the bullies are a mixed bag. You know, there's some that just kind of enjoy. It's almost like an extension of play for them. It's something fun to do. They're, of course, pretty horrible about it, but you know, you know, scare them, chase them, maybe get in a fight, beat them up a little bit. That's that's how they get their rocks. But then there are some. Then there's Henry, who has this pathological desire to actually harm or even kill them. And then there's some of the the bullies are, I guess, between those two extremes that are more psychopathic, right? And then we'll meet another example of someone who's even a little bit too much too psychopathic, even for Henry, and that's Patrick Hockstetter, who isn't here, who isn't in the fight. It's actually introduced later in the story. I don't know if he was a... I don't want to say Patrick Hockstetter was a was an afterthought for King. He is mentioned earlier in the story, but he's definitely a, not, a, not a member of Henry Bower's gang in the same way like Victor Chris and, and Huggins and, and some of the others here are. There's some that really don't play a big role in the story except for this. It's Belch, Huggins, Victor Chris, and Henry Bowers are the ones who go in the sewer and are killed... Uh, you know, two of them are die. Two of them die in the sewer. But Henry and the other boys chase Mike using like M80s and you know firecrackers. And the original plan, I think, was to put the M80s in Hamlin's shoe and then like injure his feet somehow. I don't, I don't quite know how the plan would work out, but they begin to chase him, and um, and it's a pretty violent chase. I mean. Uh, Mike, I think Henry admits he kills Mike's dog, and this leads Mike to begin to like throw stuff at Hen at Henry, and the the chase begins to escalate more and more into an actual confrontation, into a fight, not just bullies chasing their their target. Um, so this grows into a true threat to the losers. That's what I want to say. All right, so now. Uh, I'm not quite sure where the flips back and forth between the, the six losers playing on the Barons and Mike and the chase uh, happen. Uh, they happen repeatedly in the chapter. But uh, when we do flip back to the losers, um, we, we learn a little bit more about Bill's research, what is revealed. So after they're playing their hunting game, they talk a little bit about it. Um, and Bill's research, um, which is kind of, was it? No, I think here it's it's mentioned for the first time. Yeah, this is the first mention. I, I was going to say maybe it was mentioned before, but I think I, it's just because um, I was misremembering like when I read this stuff last. But it's here that Bill first mentions go going to the library and researching this ritual of Chud and how creatures like it can have been challenged by cultures in history, and I think the ritual of Chud comes from like Tibetan culture and how there's kind of shape-shifting entities and demons that that have been confronted by humans in the past through this ritual of Chud. And this Chud is described as uh, a challenge in which you, uh, kind of a psychic duel in which you grab the tongue of the, of the entity you're fighting against and then begin to tell jokes uh, back and forth until one side laughs and then that defeats the other side. Now, this is not really literally what happens, but what 
in, and we don't, the ritual of Chud is not fully described at any point in the book, I don't think. It, we, it's pretty close, but it is essentially a psychic duel in which you use the weapons of the mind against them. Um, the blows are not physical. This is really one of the frustrating things about the movie adaptations is where they just reduce it to, if I believe this weapon will hurt it, I can use it. Um, which there's some truth to that. That's that's certainly in the text as well, where it does take the form, of, or it's, it's, it can be injured by what the form it takes can be injured by, right? Like if it comes at you a vampire, it is can be injured by a, a stake through the heart, right? But that's not how it is ultimately defeated. It's ultimately defeated in the psychic duel. And the weapons are things like the Irish cop voice or uh, or the 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 saying like Bill's saying that he thrusts his fists against the posts and still insists he sees his ghost. These are the types of things that are used to defeat it in the psychic duel. But it's kind of comes to us down through culture, and I think um, I think King does a really interesting job, almost Lovecraftian, and how we see how like vernacular traditions are sort of passed on through the generations and come to us as folklore and culture. Um, and I think that's really really well done here um because you know i was when i was that age i like to go to the library and read about mystical things and weird psychic things and i i sort of had some belief in it i want to say for me there was truth to those experiences and whether it was like um psychic abilities or or ouija boards or astral projection or ghosts I definitely believe in that stuff, and I like to read into that paranormal thing, those paranormal things. And, you know, you read those books, and it talks about the culture, and it talks about the folklore behind these these beliefs. And it was great stuff. I really enjoyed that. That's where I got a lot of my pleasure as a, as a child. So there's something really believable about Bill doing this kind of research in the library and finding something. Uh, the fact that it works is, I think... You know, I don't want. I don't think we should take a one-for-one one relationship between the ritual of Chud, as described in the final chapters of the book, and the ritual of Chud as described in in uh, Bill the Bill's research. I think Bill just found something that maybe the turtle helped him find it, but that's enough. And it's called the ritual of Chud, but that's you know whatever it really is is something they get they they figure out on the spot almost. Uh, that's why it has to be remembered. It's not enough to remember that Bill read this book. They have to remember actually confronting it in in 58 for them to use it again. So this is all described here. And they also, so they learn about Chud and they, they learn also about the relationship between it and the sewers. So this is all worked out. Now, as they're having this conversation, Mike is fleeing uh, to the losers at the gravel pit where they end up playing. Um, which is near, it's off the Barrens. It's like adjacent to the Barrens. So it's kind of uh, ambiguous territory. If we think of the Barrens as the territory of the losers, this is borderlands, I suppose. And But they're playing there, and that's when Mike comes. And immediately, Mike takes the side of the losers. Bill takes leadership. He's the general here. He gets people to, you know, he gets the other losers to fill their pockets with, with rocks. And then the fight comes. And it's very, very natural how they come together it's also very uh they have their natural enemies here and defeating this enemy the the physical enemy their natural their non-supernatural enemy 
has a couple effects. One is it brings them together. It, it once, once again shows the power of them collectively as a group to defeat um, a greater force. And it also, by defeating the, the, the Bowers gang, it kind of takes them off the table for a while. Now, eventually they're back in the game, but it does for a while give them breathing space where the bullies aren't going to bother them so they can f focus on the, the greater conflict, which is what the events of these chapters bring us to. So all in all, a pretty good and memorable chapter, obviously, and a really important one for several reasons. Um, so we get Bill learning about the sewers from his father here um, and his investigations into that. Notice that Bill is leading the investigation in different areas here. He's not, the other losers aren't really doing that. Bill is the one actively investigating how to kill uh, it, where it is and all that. And he learns about the sewers from his father here um, and investigates the nature of it. Um, and I, I think another interesting thing in this chapter is how play, how the act of playing leads the losers to their final member, Mike. They are just playing in the barrens and in the gravel pit, playing their hunting game, intermixing that with their discussions about their their enemy of the of the summer. But just playing brings them to their final member. It. It's not that they seek him out. It's not like oh, we need a seventh person. Let's find a friend. It's just their natural activities as children bring them to their final member. And I love how their losers are able to continue to play and enjoy their life despite the danger, the clear danger they are in. Um, of course, we also get a really deep description here of the roots of the Bowers' hatred for the Hanlins, which is, I think, just the overall racial hatred of, of, of downwardly mobile whites towards upwardly mobile whites. Um, I don't know how much racial history King read, but he certainly grokked this really well. It's something you can read about when you read whiteness studies or labor history or, or you know, histories of race in the South, of, of how, like, Klan members or um, Confederate soldiers, these people who wanted to read, who, who defended racial white supremacy to the end, how these people were threatened by upwardly mobile African-Americans, whether it was the free blacks in the South or or landowners or voters, anyone who threatened their declining power, right? And in the rise of capitalism in post-Civil War America, as more and more whites in America became servants of the bosses, as in capitalism, their racial hatred deepened. Um, and again, I don't know how much King read of this history. I, I, I guess not very much. He just really understands this at, at, a, at a, you know, growing up, at this time, I think. I think he's really, um, he understands this really well. Not because I don't think he's personally a subject to it. He's certainly an anti-racist, um, but he understands this about America. Now, of course, it takes all seven of the leaders to defeat the, defeat the bullies. We see them all use their abilities and skills to defeat the bullies. Um, is there evidence of supernatural forces bringing these people together, though? Um, perhaps. Uh, I do think it is involved with the bullies, especially in their turn towards really brutal violence, whether it's cutting up Ben or trying to basically try to kill Mike at this point or kill the losers when it comes to the fight. But so there's probably something with the turtle or it involved in this. But 
um, there is something magical, and and the text make makes this pretty explicit here. And then, of course, uh, finally we get the introduction to the ritual of chuds. So so much important, so many important things happen in this chapter that it makes the next chapter, the album, a little um, anticlimactic in contrast. But I uh, do want to emphasize how important the album chapter is as well. So we get uh, an introduction to this chapter set in 85 from uh, Mike's point of view, mostly. Um, and we see how all the losers uh, come back to the library and they all bring booze with them of various types. And they begin to meet and Mike's like in the back room finishing up his closing procedures for the library. And then he opens up like the little beer fridge he has in his office and he sees Stan Uris's head and you know it basically fucking with Mike there um so that's that's um and then he begins to think about the album which is kind of a chapter that's closely associated with Mike because the album is Mike's father's album and it's uh, another way that um King allows us to get into some of Derry's history. Usually uses the interlude chapters to do that, but this is a great example of how, um, you know, how how we another way we're able to get at the past, which is you know William as an outsider, William Hanlon, I mean, as an outsider is someone who's, you know, has that kind of inherent interest in Derry's history in a way that the people who grew up there don't. Uh, I think that's significant. Um, I think the movie, the new movie version, made a really big mistake in making Ben the historian. I don't know why they struggled with, like, what to do with Ben there, that they had to take away Mike's major role. And and they, I think they really botched Mike's character in the, in the, in the, in the movie version, in both timelines. It was really hard to watch. Um, but I think it's rooted in the fact that they take away this fact that that his family are like his like historians are are informal historians and Mike carries on that job uh, when he becomes a librarian. It's uh, it's a nice uh, character arc for him. Anyways, um, now in '58 we see the losers beginning work on a clubhouse in the Barrens. So of course, if if um, Bill is Bill Dembro is like uh, King Arthur, the leader of the knights, and Silver is his mount. The clubhouse is the castle, I suppose. Uh, they're building this after the apocalyptic rock fight as a way to try to defend themselves and to hide away from the bullies if they get bothered by the bullies. It's basically a big hole in the ground that they prop up and then cover up with a, with a wood door. Now we see here that Mike is formally brought into the group. There's almost like a ritual involved in this where he has to agree to keep their secrets. Um, and then they share their stories uh, again. So this is the second time they share their stories. And Mike uh, tells his stories. And I think he does tell about the Kitchener Iron Work and the bird story as well. Um, they, he must because they all experience the bird later on in the story. But then Mike also tells another encounter he had with it. Um, and that's in the 4th of July, July parade. So this is right after that. And Mike was like in the marching band for his school at the 4th of July parade, and he sees it in the form of Pennywise, because before he, Mike didn't see it as Pennywise, he saw it as the, as the bird. But 
Mike sees it first as Pennywise with kids at one point in the parade and then later on sees the same clown. And the question is like, was it just two people in the clown suit? No, Mike sure is the same clown. And really cool here is how the kids are afraid of the clown. It's it's great. The clown is not meant to attract them. The kids, it's, it is meant to be kind of eerie or creepy or fear-inducing. Um, or maybe kids just somehow understand its threat at a level maybe the adults don't. I mean, it is, in certain situations, a clown can be can hide in, in plain sight in a way, but the kids are not comfortable around, um, around it. Um, and then after that, Mike says, okay, I have this photo album we can look at, and that might have some evidence of it. And so it's his father's photo album. So he brings it back and then they look through it. And in the photo album, we get all sorts of of, of history of, of dairy. Um, it kind of fills in some of the history that, not, that we're not getting in the interlude chapters. And this photo album, it's not clear how William got all these, these images and pictures. He must have done a lot of work to get these all because some of these are like rare, one-of-a-kind kind of historical artifacts, including like wood prints and you know from 19th century newspapers and even some 18th century drawings from early in dairy history but you know clearly pennywise it in the form of pennywise appears in some of these images and we also just see kind of how dairy's always been kind of bizarre and weird that that's kind of revealed here but really important here's the important thing about the album is they're all looking through it they they i think william or sorry mike looks at it first and sees images of that he that he thinks is evidence of it then mike brings it to the clubhouse and so they're in the clubhouse looking at the pictures as a group and they go through them all and then it reveals itself to the entire losers club and basically challenges them to uh, to a duel, it, I guess I can't think of any other way to put it, but that's essentially what it does at this point. Uh, attacking them directly, as you know, as the forms of what it was uh, when it confronted them, and that's how they see it. Um, that's how the losers see it, and then threatens to kill them, to drive them mad, to murder them, and um, and then they. You know, so it kind of brings them all together. It appears like it appears as though as the mummy to all of them. It appears as the leper to all of them. So all of them get to experience firsthand what all the other losers individually experienced. And I guess this there's also a lot made here about Stan uh, finally accepting he's the last to fully believe, and the other losers convince him that what they that they all shared that experience. It wasn't a delusion. It wasn't a hallucination. It was what they all saw, and that puts them all on the same page and then um basically um william takes leadership here and says we are going to um kill this thing um and then they just casually go back to building the club finishing the clubhouse and that is how the chapter ends so there's it's a short chapter but i think it's really important because it is setting up the um the confrontation um between it and the losers as both are one is fully revealed and the other is and the and the losers are fully formed i guess 
Now, Bill has some regrets here, or, or at least some hesitation in, you know, using his friends to confront it. He, you know, we get the narrator saying, he saw in the gratitude in their eyes, and he felt a measure of gladness for them. But their gratitude did little to heal his own horror. In fact, there was something in their gratitude which made him want uh, to hate them. Would he never be able to express his own terror, lest that fragile welds that made them into one thing should let should be should let go and even to think such a thing wasn't really fair was it because in some measure at least he was to at least in some measure at least he was using them using his friends risking their lives to settle the score for his dead brother and was even that the bottom no because george was dead and if revenge could be exacted at all bill suspected it could only be ex exacted on behalf of the living and what did that make him? A selfish little shit waving a tin sword and trying to make himself look like King Arthur, which is uh, a, a metaphor for, for Bill that we are certainly meant to, to to have, I think, by this point in the story. So I guess that wraps up um, these two these two chapters and that interlude. In the next episode, I'll be looking at chapter 15 and 16, which is uh, the smoke hole. That's events set about one week after the events of the album. And then uh, and then Eddie's bad break, uh, which is you know when Eddie broke his arms. That's a, about a week or a few days after that event. So things happen fast here over the next uh, couple weeks in the story. And yeah. And I'll, I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts about that. I have to reread them first, though. I'm, um, I'm rereading this as I'm recording these episodes, so I have to reread them and uh, you know put together my thoughts about those chapters. Um, but for now, I'll leave you and uh, let you respond to me. Let me know what you think about uh, these particular chapters or these events. I do think these are really crucial chapters in setting the stage for the climax of of the novel so um that's it for now i'll see you next time going down to lonesome town where the broken heart stay going down to lonesome town to cry my troubles away in the town